Isaiah chapter 31, beginning in verse one, it says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. Now, the Egyptians are men and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, both he who helps will fall and he who is helped will fall down. They all will perish together. For thus the Lord has spoken to me. As a lion roars and a young lion over his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is summoned against him, he will not be afraid of their voice nor be disturbed by their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight for Mount Zion and for its hill. Like birds flying about, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending, he will also deliver it. Passing over, he will preserve it. Return to him against whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. For in that day, every man shall throw away his idols of silver and his idols of gold. Sin, which your own hands have made for yourselves. Then Assyria shall fall by a sword, not of man. And a sword, not of mankind, shall devour him. But he shall flee from the sword. And his young men shall become forced labor. He shall cross over to his stronghold for fear. And his princes shall be afraid of the banner, says the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Most of you have heard the expression that the best offense is a good defense, particularly when football season rolls in. Now I'm sort of sad that I kept you guys so long on Sunday for that Bronco game. It was pretty exciting. The best offense is a good defense. Warren Wearsby tells of a friend who kept a card in his office. And on, if you would walk in, the card would read, Faith is living without scheming. We as Christians are called to live by faith. And if we're called to live by faith, we can't live by schemes, by the next deal, by trying to figure out how we're going to be able to keep the wheels turning. With Christ, you don't have to scheme. With the Lord God, you don't have to trust in the schemes and the resources of failed philosophies and broken economies. God wants his people to trust him and trusting God is the best defense and the most successful offense. And most of you know that because if you've ever trusted someone and they've disappointed you, if you've ever trusted in a job or you've trusted in an economy or you've trusted in a family member or, or you've trusted in a spouse or you've trusted in the arm of the flesh, the chances are you've been disappointed. You may have trusted a friend. You may have even trusted a religion. You may have trusted a technology. This computer is supposed to work. 
This car isn't supposed to break down. It's got a four-year, 36,000-mile warranty. It's not supposed to break, especially when you're in a strange place. When we trust someone or something, it can lead to shame. It can lead to embarrassment. We can fail a test. We can lose a job. We can go bankrupt. We can lose our home. We can lose our health. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel had been lied to. They were told to trust the false gods. They found themselves in a circumstance where they thought that they had to make an unhealthy alliance with Egypt. Remember what we've been telling you over and over again in, in Isaiah's book. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel. Remember what we've been talking about, the threat from the northern kingdom's of Assyria were were devastating and overwhelming and over and over again God told them don't trust Egypt to help you in your circumstances with Assyria you must trust the Lord and those who know the Lord know that they can trust Him for the permanent longings and the needs of our life. We can trust the Lord. If the Bible says anything, it is that the Lord is trustworthy. He is a person who communicates the truth and then keeps His promises. We can trust the Lord Jesus Christ. We can trust His promises. We can trust His Word. And then God used Isaiah to issue this strong warning both to leaders and people during the day of Isaiah. Trust the Lord, he kept saying. Remember, place no confidence in the flesh. And remember, the flesh is everything that you are apart from God and apart from Christ. The flesh are the schemes and the circumstances that we contrive so that we don't have to trust the Lord. Place no confidence in men. Place no confidence in this world's kingdom. Remember, the children of Israel claim to know the Lord. They claim to love the Lord. We love God. We're the children of Abraham. We're the children of Isaac and Jacob. We're the children that Moses brought from Egypt and we passed through the Red Sea. It was Joshua who brought us into the land. We are the children of the covenant. We're the ones who were given the Bible. And you may be a person who grew up in a church and you may be fairly familiar with the Bible. And you may have even been used by God in ministry. But for whatever reason... You're not trusting the Lord. Here's one of the ways that you know that you're not trusting the Lord. When you ignore him. If you ignore God. And then rebel against him. And turn in a different direction. I think that those are pretty good indicators that you're not trusting the Lord. Instead of trusting God. 
They were trusting in the economy and the military might of Egypt. And remember what we've already learned from the Bible, that Egypt becomes a type and a picture of this world. And remember, at this time in history, Egypt was still a powerful nation. They were an economic powerhouse. It was in Egypt that they raised horses. It was in Egypt that chariots were produced. But their power and their influence was significantly in decline. Sadly, when you trust the world, the world will fail you. And so this present warning is the fourth woe given by Isaiah to the people. And the woe is directed primarily to the pro-Egyptian supporters who said, look, we've got to do something We've got to do something. And if you look at the text when it says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, it's very interesting in the original language because it's in the past tense. What that basically means is Isaiah has already told us not to go to Egypt, but there you went. It's like us. The Bible has already told you not to trust the arm of the flesh. The Bible has told you not to return to the world. The Bible has already told you to go back. What were you thinking? You already knew that, you can, that you've been drunk and it didn't work. You've used drugs. It didn't work. You've been involved in promiscuous relationships. It didn't work. You've already gone down that road. You've already trusted those things. You've already experienced those things. Those things have already failed you. Why would you go back to something that has already failed you over and over and over again? And so once again, the Lord issues an invitation to those who ignore him and rebel against him. And says, return. And When he issues the invitation to return, he points out that the evidence of a changed heart is a changed life. The people of Judah will turn from idols and worship the true and the living God. And with that repentance comes the assurance that God will destroy the invading armies of Assyria. They will fall. And then God issues a promise and a supernatural prophecy through Isaiah, the prophet. They will fall and they will fall with a sword forged nowhere on the planet Earth. It will not be Egyptian chariots. It will not be Israeli foot soldiers. God himself will deliver them. They will fall. And here's what we know, that an angel of the Lord will destroy them. When you read chapter 31, it reads very much like many chapters we've already discussed. Devastation, invitation, salvation. It sounds like a broken record, doesn't it? Gino, it, it seems impossible. I've been coming to this Isaiah study and you seem to be saying the same thing week after week. That's because Isaiah is saying the same thing week after week. Because you have the same cry week after week. Lord, why am I in this mess again? Why do I find myself in this circumstance again? Well, you didn't trust me. You went your own way. You did your own thing. Guess what? I still love you. (laughs) The worst defense... 
the worst defense is the failure to trust the Lord. And so again, a clear picture emerges. People were far more likely to trust the wisdom and the power of the false gods and the false goddesses of men rather than the true God. They would have Azurah and they would have Baal and the Greeks would have Zeus and the Romans would have Jupiter. We have Oprah. She comes on the mighty television and you turn her on and there is the glorious goddess Oprah bringing words of wisdom to a lost and lonely world. But have you noticed that her message is consistent? You don't have to trust the God of the Bible. You don't have to turn from your sin. You don't have to have a right relationship with God. Isaiah refers to the real God, the true God, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel. I don't think it's a mistake that he's using that particular expression, the Holy One. Do you realize that the word holy means other? It means utterly different. It means distinct, separate from, distinct from everything else. And so when the Bible refers to the Holy One of Israel, it's talking about the true and the living God, the self-existent God. This isn't a, a God that human beings fabricated or dreamt up in their own imagination. This is the true God, the living God, the real God who created the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. On my radio program today, I had a, a caller. He called me a false prophet. He said, you have to stop teaching that God created the world in six literal days. And I said, are you seriously calling me up and on my own program telling me what I can and can't teach? You're a false prophet. Now, why am I a false prophet? Because God didn't create the heavens and the earth in six literal days. Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 seems to indicate that it did. So, guess what? I'm going to continue to teach it. Goodbye. Isaiah, over and over again, is continuing to say the same things over and over again. Trust the Lord. Trust the true God. Trust the living God. The Lord alone is holy. He alone is righteous. He is alone is perfect in wisdom. And because God alone knows the beginning from the end, he has perfect wisdom. He has perfect understanding. He can be trust. Judah's only hope of deliverance from the Assyrian threat is the Lord. And as much as it's difficult for us from time to time. When we're facing particularly difficult circumstances and someone says to you, hey, you need to really trust the Lord in this. I know right now things are really hard and things are really difficult. Well, I don't understand. I don't, I don't know where my next meal is going to come from. I don't know how I'm going to get a job. I don't know how I'm going to make the house payment. Trust the Lord. In First Kings Chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, we, we learn that Egypt was well equipped 
It says also Solomon had horses imported from Egypt in Kevah. The king's merchants bought them in Kevah at the current price. Now a chariot that was imported from Egypt cost 600 shekels of silver and a horse 150. And thus, through their agents, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Syria. What it's basically saying is in this particular moment in time and space, in the history of, of Judah and Jerusalem, Egypt is the arms dealer to the world. And if you're going to war, it would make perfect sense to get arms from the arms dealer. And looking at it from a strictly human standpoint, the alliance with Egypt was the only thing that made sense. And looking at it from a strictly human standpoint, you might think, you don't understand, Gina, trusting the Lord, that's not an option. I have to do, I have to really do something. You, you don't understand, I have a serious problem and we have to do something here. We can't just pray about it. We can't just ask God to help us. Do you know when a person makes that kind of a statement, they're in effect revealing their heart of unbelief and, and their lack of faith. That's the point. God has spoken. Do not trust Israel. Do not place your confidence in them. And think about it for just a moment. When God speaks to you and he asks you, please place no confidence in those things which invariably will disappoint you. God's wisdom always exceeds the wisdom of the local politicians. We're looking to the right to politically make the right decision. We're looking to the left because there's nothing left. Well, guess what? You look to the right and you look to the left and you're still going to be disappointed. Christians seem to, to look to the left or look to the right. But political parties, both liberal and conservative agendas, fall short of God's perfect plan in Christ. And guess what? The failed human agencies also fall short of the perfect plans. And look at verse two. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and will not call back his words, but will arise against the, the house of evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. In verse two, the Bible says the Lord is wise. Your father knows what's best. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster. The idea being, look. If you trust someone or something other than the Lord, it's going to turn out bad for you. That's what he's saying. And he will not call back his words. That means that when God says, trust me, he isn't going to change his mind and say, hey, you, OK, you were right. You don't have to trust me. Go ahead. Turn the TV back on. Listen to Dr. Phil. Listen to Oprah. Turn on the TV. Look at the modern psychological gurus. Go to the economic junkies. Go to the circumstances of this world. He, there's hundreds of channels on cable. You can hear hundreds of voices saying thousands of things on who to trust. But you'll note that very rarely will anyone from the radio or the TV say, 
Turn your TV off. Turn the radio off. Open up your Bible. Listen to God's word. God will do what's necessary. The Lord won't call back his words. The Lord will keep his word. People who embrace evil will be judged. That's what he said. In the generation of Moses, God warned the children of Israel who disobeyed his word that they would face judgment. And so when a new generation comes up and says, if you disobey God's word, you too will face judgment. Now, here's what's really interesting. God has already exacted judgment on the cross of Calvary. I've told you this over and over again. For those of you who know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God judged iniquity on the cross of Calvary. It says, and against the help of those who work iniquity, that is, the Lord will destroy the wicked in Judah and he will destroy all of those who align with wickedness. And again, just very briefly, when you look at verses three and four, now the Egyptians are men and not God and their horses are flesh and not spirit. He's basically contrasting that which is eternal and that which is temporal. It says in verse three, now the Egyptians are men and not God. This particular passage is difficult. Because it could also be translated, now the Egyptians are men and not gods. It could also be translated in the plural. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. What is he saying? Human beings aren't God. Popular or contrary to some popular mystical opinion, those people who believe you're God, you're God, the tree is God, the guitar is God. The pulpit is God. We are all God. No, the Lord makes it abundantly clear that the self-existent God is different from man-made, self-made gods. So when he's contrasting now, the Egyptians are men and not God. They can't do what God can do. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. The contrast is between that which is temporary and that which is eternal. That which is truly substantive and that which is not truly substantive. The idea being, remember when Jesus was sitting at the at the well with the with the Samaritan woman in in um, in John chapter four. And he told her that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He's contrasting that which is temporary and that which is eternal, that which is powerful and that which is impotent. And he contrasts that with God's ability to act in any given circumstance because God is God. He can act and he can act in, in any circumstance. There are certain things that only God can do. Only God can forgive sin. Only God can give peace. Only God can give eternal life. And so when you enter into that failed relationship with that particular person, if you enter into a relationship with who is an unbeliever and this relationship isn't good for you and you go, but I need this, I need companionship, I need friendship, I need relationship, I need to fill the emptiness that's inside of me and I need someone who's flesh and blood. It's true. That person can give you physical companionship for a season. 
But can that man or that woman forgive your sin? Give you eternal life? Cleanse you? Wash you? Give you hope? And you see, this is, this is the tragedy that we do as human beings. We, as human beings, when we rebel against God, we usually embrace a different God, whether it's beer, whether it's alcohol, whether it's a husband, whether it's a wife, whether it's a job, whether it's intellectualism, whether it's whatever it happens to be. We fill our minds with information. We fill our hearts with saturation. We do this and we do that. And we ascribe to these idols those attributes of God, but they aren't God. And so they're destined to disappoint. Our strength and our dependence comes from the Lord. The men of Egypt were mere men. The horses mere flesh. The chariots only machines. And when the Lord stretches out His hand in judgment, He's going to utterly destroy the men. He's going to utterly destroy the horses. He's going to utterly destroy the machines. And the Lord has already indicated that He's going to stretch forth His hand. And there's going to come a time when this world and everything in it is going to pass away. And in verse 4, look what it says. For thus the Lord has spoken to me. As a lion roars. And a young lion over his prey. When a multitude of shepherds is summoned against him, he will not be afraid of their voice, nor be disturbed by their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight for Mount Zion and for its hill. And then in verse 5, like birds flying around, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending, he also will deliver it. Passing over, he will preserve it. Here's the promise that Isaiah is giving. Turn from your wickedness, turn from your sin, trust the Lord. The Lord himself will defend a faithful remnant in Jerusalem. The Lord himself will defend the faithful remnant in Jerusalem. He has to. Do you know why he has to? Because he has a plan and a purpose for Jerusalem and for Judah. He has to. Here, here's the deal. In the 7th century B.C., was the Messiah there? The Messiah was yet future. From 700 B.C., as you fast forward into 6th century B.C. and 5th century B.C., and then the, 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 the Babylonian captivity and the 4th century B.C., and then the Egyptian, or excuse me, the... Um, the Greeks take over and then after the Greeks take over, the Romans take over and after the Romans take over. In a little dusty town called Bethlehem, a virgin girl from Nazareth is going to supernaturally be found with child. She's going to make her way to Bethlehem. She's going to give birth to a child and the child is going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the savior of the earth because that's God's plan and God's purpose. He's going to intervene in time and space and he's going to deliver humanity from their sin. So he has some unfinished business and he's going to do it. And you know what's interesting to me? Until it's your time to go, God's willing to use you if you're willing to be used by God. Hey, you know what? You could die tomorrow or day after tomorrow. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell someone about Jesus today. You don't understand. I have serious problems and the biggest problem in my life can't be 
to be used by God in order to tell someone else about Jesus. Have you ever stopped to consider that your life and everything about your life might find its ultimate expression and its ultimate fulfillment today or tomorrow? You're going to meet a man or a woman. You've already met this person. Who knows what God's plans and purposes are. But God is going to use you in order to make a difference in the life of an individual who's going to make a difference in the kingdom of God to set in motion a series of events so that Jesus Christ can be glorified in your life. And then you're going to die happy. The Lord's going to defend Jerusalem. The Lord fears Assyria about as much as a lion fears a flock of sheep. That's the idea. When it says in verse 31, as a lion roars and as a young lion, this means a lion in the, in the prime of its life over its prey. Here's the idea. Here is a ferocious lion who's eating a sheep and a bunch of shepherds come by and they're going, put that sheep down. What are you doing? I'm telling you right now, unless you put the sheep down, you're in serious trouble. And the lion looks up and goes. The lion's not afraid. Take your shepherds and all of your shepherd friends and all of you can attack me at once. And here's how it's going to end. I'm going to hurt, maim or kill all of you. And so. When people yell and scream and make noises. You can't trust God. Go away, God. Go away. It's like the circumstances that you face. Just tell the God of the Bible to go away. Just close your Bible. Turn on cable. He'll go away. Fill your mind with anything other than with God. Are you ignoring God? Do you find it difficult To trust him because you're so busy learning about the opinions and wisdom of mere mortals? Or do you truly look to the wisdom of God that's found in God's book, the Bible? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you can't trust anyone under any circumstance. We trust doctors. We trust nurses. We trust medical professionals. We need help. We need insight. We need instruction. God does place gifted men and women in our lives to offer us help and hope. But the best doctor, the best nurse, the best medical professional doesn't know everything about everything. And there may come a time where you have to trust the Lord. Are you trusting your own wisdom, your own ability, your own cleverness, your own ingenuity? We live in a world where most politicians and most leaders never seek God's advice on the most important questions of life. The scientists in the world are not seeking God's advice. The teachers in most of the public school system aren't seeking God's advice. The psychiatrists and the psychologists are not seeking God's advice. God love them. God bless them. God love them and bless them that they have a sensitive heart and a compassionate heart. And most people who are in in caring professional circumstances, they love people. They care about children. They care about circumstances, but they're not really looking to God for advice. 
We're not forbidden to use scientific research. We're not forbidden to use the latest technology. I'm not suggesting that Calvary now become an Amish colony. And we sell our Volkswagen and we, we drive around in carriages. That's not what I'm suggesting. I am suggesting that everybody get a Volkswagen. No, I'm just teasing. You don't have to get a Volkswagen. In Luke chapter 12, you know the story in verses 19 through 21. Jesus talks about the man who lived his whole life storing up treasure. In Luke chapter 12, verse 19, it says, And I will say to my soul, soul, you've many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. But God said, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself, listen carefully, and is not rich toward God. The Bible doesn't say you can't make a living. The Bible doesn't say that you can't even make a very good living. But the Bible says beware when you're making a good living, but then you ignore God. Look what it says in verse 6. Return to him against whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. Again, once again, God issues the invitation to return to the Lord. For those who have rebelled, for those who have disobeyed, for those who have sinned, return. And I, I think it's interesting, again, that Isaiah uses the expression of those who... Look, look, read it for yourself. Those who have deeply revolted. Do you know what deeply revolted is? It's what my dad used to say. I've done some things. What things, Dad? Things. Dad, what, what kinds of things? Bad things. Terrible things. Awful things. Dad, what did you do? I've done some things. What have you done? I've done some things. I said some things. I thought some things. I've gone places and embraced things that I never should have embraced. Bad things? Bad things. Deeply revolted? Deeply revolted. Read the beginning of the sentence. Return to him against whom the children of Israel have Deeply revolted. Have you ever done something so bad that you thought, there's no way God's going to take me back? I'm going to hell for sure. And then God reveals His love and His grace and His mercy and His compassion. And every wicked, horrible, terrible thing. And God begins to move you away from the wickedness. You see, that expression, return to him, is also the same meaning of repent. It means to turn around and go in a different direction. It means that for those of us mentally, um, emotionally, physically, verbally, however we, it, it expresses itself in your life, and you're walking away from God, you're walking away from God, the Bible says you can stop right on that spot, and you can turn around, and you can walk again back towards God. No matter how deep and how desperate and how dark you've lived. 
for those who have rebelled, for those who have disobeyed. He says, return. This is an invitation. For the deeply disobedient, for the greatly rebellious, and you might think, oh, I'm not deeply disobedient. I'm just sort of bad. My rebellion isn't a great rebellion. It's a tiny rebellion. Just a little, bitty, tiny, tiny rebellion. But guess what? You can turn around. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 31, it says, Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed. Ezekiel 18.31 says, and get yourselves a new heart and get a new spirit. Why would you die, O Israel? When the prophet Ezekiel said, cast away your transgressions which you have committed. Get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. The idea being that that's exactly what God is willing to do. He's willing to give you a new spirit and a new heart. He's willing to change you from the inside out. In Isaiah 55, 7, it says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I don't know if God will take me back. Let me repeat it for you. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. He's not looking for a reason to keep you away. He's he's looking for a reason to keep you close. Paul talking to the um, the Epicureans and the Stoics on Mars Hill. He said, truly, these times of ignorance in Acts 17, 30, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And so in verse seven, it says, for in that day, every man shall throw away his idols of silver and his idols of gold sin which your own hands have made for yourselves. Here's the idea. True repentance results in a true change of heart. That's the idea. For in that day, every man shall throw away his idols of silver and his idols of gold. You know, when you're serious with God, do you know when you're when you're conducting serious business with God? It's where you drink to the point where you can't stand another beer. It's where you, the alcohol, the drugs, the the circumstances, whatever is your idol of choice, whatever it is that has preoccupied you and terrified you and, and been the most important thing in your life and you look at it and you are sick of it. You can't stand it any anymore. That's the idea which your hands have made for yourselves. And that's one of the characteristics of an idol. It is man made. One of the things that you can tell if it's an idol, if it can be constructed, if it can be fabricated, if you if you can make it or it can be broken, that's an idol. Hezekiah, by the way, briefly fulfilled that prophecy in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, 
where it says he removed the high places and he broke the sacred pillars. He cut down the wooden image and he broke it in pieces. The bronze serpent that Moses had made for until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. For those of you who are unfamiliar, the children of Israel were in the wilderness. There was a bunch of snakes that came up and bit the children of Israel and they began to expand like a really bad episode of crocodile hunter. Remember when the crocodile hunter was alive and he would pick up those snakes and he would go, don't you do this. This is only for a professional. Make no mistake about it. One bite, your hands will turn black and your fingers will fall off. Nobody move. He's right between my feet. Didn't you know he was going to die at some point? Didn't you ever watch this thing and you look at each other and you go, this is wrong. This is wrong. He's going to get hurt. You know what's really interesting to me? He wrestled with crocodiles, which can really hurt you. He handled black mambas, which a single bite can kill you in a moment. But you know what he died of? stingray and a coral reef. It, it wasn't supposed to kill him. Jack Hanna, who handles animals all the time, he would say, let me tell you how improbable this is. This would be like if I had a poodle and the poodle killed me. This stingray had to hit him at just the right moment in just the right way and penetrate his heart in just the right circumstance. It wasn't the crocodile and it wasn't the snake. It was that seemingly insignificant thing that you think that you have control over. And that's when you know you're in trouble. It isn't the big thing that's going to probably kill you. It's that little thing because you let your guard down and you, you, you refuse to think it through. When the children of Israel were bitten by the serpents, Moses was instructed by the Lord to create on a pole a snake. And remember, he said, if you look at this snake, then God will heal you. But it wasn't looking at the snake. It became a type and a picture of the cross of Calvary and Jesus bearing our sin. But what happened to the children of Israel in that real moment of real relief that came as they looked by faith to a future Savior who would deliver them from their sins, they embraced religiosity. And now they just and it just became an object. It was like it was like. A, a religious object that people venerated and they completely eviscerated and forgotten its true meaning. And so he smashed it. Because Hezekiah didn't want the children of Israel to have friendship and a relationship with a religion. or But a real relationship with the true and living God of Israel from the heart. In verse 8, it says, Then Assyria shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword, not of mankind, shall devour him, but he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall become forced labor. Here's the idea. Assyria would fall from a supernatural sword forged from another world. The, the, the clue is given to us in Second Kings chapter 19, verse 35. It says, And it came to pass... 
on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians one hundred and eighty five thousand. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. Here's what happened. Hezekiah repents. Assyria still threatens them. God wipes them out. You repent. You turn from your sin. And your impossible circumstances now become possible again because God says, I do love you. I will forgive you. I will take you back. And those things that are threatening you, guess what? I'll face them and I'll I'll be your champion. And in verse nine, it says he shall cross over to a stronghold for fear and his princes shall be afraid of the banner, says the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. The idea being this, the Assyrian army flees and his princes shall be afraid of the banner. The banner is the banner of the Lord. And here is the idea of the banner. It is holding up a flag that says the Lord, our God is God. The idea is that now Judah and Jerusalem make a public declaration of love and loyalty. They're willing to go on record. I love the Lord. I want to have friendship and relationship with the Lord. I'm willing to walk in the Lord. I'm coming out of the closet and I'm letting everybody know I am willing publicly to acknowledge the true and the living God. And it says, says the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. The idea that the thing that makes him hot. The thing that God cares about is Zion and Jerusalem. Why does God care about Zion and Jerusalem? Remember what I've already told you. Because it's in Zion, it's, it's in Jerusalem. That God has a plan unfolding. Men and women honoring and loving and serving. Men and women honoring and loving and serving God. And then men and women having other men and women. And as they, they begin to affect the world, guess what? There's a real Messiah who's going to be really born. And he is going to live the perfect life that you could never live. And he's going to go to a cross that you deserve. And he's going to die for your sin. And he's going to rise from the dead never ever to die ever again. Why? Because his fire is in Zion and his furnace is in Jerusalem. But remember, the New Testament writer says that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the shame. You know, it was the joy that was set before him. You. He endures. The humiliation. The torture and the degradation. Because he has you in mind. You might sometimes forget that. Well, in the grand scheme of things, I know that there's a God and I know that he's working and he's working in the world. But God's plans and God's purposes are very specific. And they're very personal. And they involve the Messiah. In chapter 32, behold, a king will reign in righteousness. That's the Messiah. But that's for next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we keep hearing the same message. Devastation, invitation, salvation. Lord, we know sin devastates. But Lord, I'll do it again, just like Isaiah did. Extend the invitation. It doesn't have to end badly. You, you can stop trusting those things that are only, 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 only going to disappoint. Lord, I pray that each person here would come to that place where they would go, gosh, how many times do I have to hear this? And how many times do I have to be reminded to trust the Lord? But Lord, again, I thank you for the reminder. I thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. I thank you for your willingness to save us, even when we've been deeply revolted. And Lord, I pray for that person who finds themselves far away from you. Lord, I pray that they would stop making excuses and that they would turn around and return right now. Turn from their sin. Turn to you. And all of your mercy and all of your grace and all of your forgiveness. Lord, I pray for each person here that even though they haven't deeply revolted, maybe they've only revolted on a very minor level. But Lord, I pray that they would confess that and say, hey, I don't want to find myself estranged from God. I don't want to think things and do things that are dishonoring to you. And so again, Lord, we don't understand everything, but we understand this. You've asked us not to trust in anything other than you. To look to you. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that we would do exactly that, that we would look to you in the difficult circumstance that we find ourselves in. No matter how overwhelming the temptation to trust the bank, to trust the government, to trust our family, to trust our emotions, to trust whatever. And that we could just trust you and trust Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.